starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that the words that we just heard would be applied to our hearts, that we would receive them, that we would hear your word now preached and receive it, God, completely, that it would plant seeds in our heart that would bear fruit in our lives, in our words, in our actions, in our deeds. Lord, we want to be people that aren't just merely hearers of the word, but also doers. Lord, we ask for your uh, forgiveness in the areas that we've fallen short this week, in areas that we've chosen not to follow you. We ask for your forgiveness now, God, and we repent, Lord, and turn away from those things that aren't pleasing to you, those things that are sin, those things that are uh, reviling, God. So let us corporately, Lord, even right now in our hearts, confess our sin and turn to you. Father, thank you that you are always quick to forgive. Always quick to forgive. And you are a good and gracious God who sent your Son for us. Continue to be with us, Lord. Continue to inhabit the praises of your people. Continue to have your Spirit here among us. Fill us with your Spirit to hear your word rightly. We don't want to be the natural man, Lord, that just hears the natural things and does the natural things. We want to be the spiritual man that hears the word and responds that does spiritual things. So do that, Lord, we ask, more and more each and every day for your glory. Amen. What if I told you that um, you had 32 acres as a church for your property, 137,000 square feet, which is about 12 to 15 times the size of this building, and an average attendance of about 10,000 a week. That's pretty big church, right? And what if I told you that that church recently decided to close its doors and go online only? Because that's what a church in Denver recently decided to do, to go online only. Even a professor at a secular school commented on this. He said, being the body of Christ means functioning together and being in community is critical. And he's right, right? And it's just Blows my mind because we're going through the corporate worship book in our life groups, and it, we just got done emphasizing the importance of community and being in community and gathering together. Even the word ecclesia, which is how we normally translate the word church, 
in the New Testament. I mean, it means the called out ones. You can translate it the assembly. So it's hard to be the assembly if you're not assembling, right? So how can the body be the body, and how can you edify one another if you're not around one another? How can you gather if there's no gathering? We are built for community. I mean, even think back to the garden. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So as I said last week, in these five verses, there is a lot of theology that's given to us. It's, a, it's like a mini systematic theology that's being laid out for us, and, it, and it's very deep. And we're going to continue looking at it today. Um, but even, like I said, with this fledgling church, God was get, willing to give them the truth, the straight truth, and to go pretty deep with them. So that means that regardless of where we're at as believers, like we can go pretty deep in our theology, in our study, in our understanding. So last time we looked at comfort because of who God is and what God has done. This time we'll look at comfort because of what God will do. There's two different uh, ways prayers are expressed in the New Testament. And we see a prayer here if you look at verse 16. When he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, that is a prayer. There's two ways you can set up a prayer um, with the Greek language. One is the imperative mood. The imperative is like a command or a request. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, the disciples come. Jesus says, hey, you know, teach us to pray. So what does he, he do? He ends up laying out for them in Matthew 6 how to pray. And we get some of it with your kingdom come. That's actually in the imperative. That's, that's a command. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's, that's a command. Forgive us our debts. That's a command. But the way we're not commanding God to do something, it's just the way they would have set up prayers in the New Testament. Um, even if you think about it, we actually pray that way as well. Lord, heal my brother, right? It's just the way our prayers are set up. That's our divine talk, so to speak, when we're speaking with the Lord. Um, we're not commanding him to do something. We're asking him to do something. But that's a, that's a similar pattern. We follow the pattern that Jesus set out for us. So you can do it with the imperatives, but you can also do it with the optative mood, which desires uh, a, a wish. It expresses a wish um, or a desire. So what we're seeing here with that word may is the optative mood. Um, we see this about 400 times in the Greek Old Testament. The Psalms use it quite a bit. You know, they're, the psalmists are pouring out their heart before the Lord, right? And they see this, this case used a lot uh, where they're, they're seeking the Lord and asking him to do different things. Paul uses it quite a bit in the New Testament. Um, and one of the times he uses it over and over is his um, famous, which you see in Romans, the meganoita, let it never be, literally. Uh, we would translate it like never. May it not happen. Um, so apart from that, there's many other places where it occurs. And we've already seen it in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3. Um, now we're going to see it here in 2 Thessalonians. What's the significance of it? Well, I mean, a few things I want you to notice when it comes to this prayer. Notice First, 
that Jesus is mentioned before God. Now, that would be disturbing to anyone that doesn't have a Trinitarian theology, right? But it's no problem for us. You can put the Father first or the Son or the Spirit. You can pray to any one of them, actually. Now, the normal pattern is to pray to the Father. But we saw in 1 Thessalonians that Paul's praying to Jesus. Here he's doing the same thing, praying to both Jesus and the Father. But he's mentioned before God. Now, some of you are fans of uh, chiasms, and there's actually a chiasm going on here. We won't really get into it, but in verse 13 and 16, you actually see that. But the second thing I want us to note, so Jesus is mentioned before God, but the verb there when it says, May our God, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. Uh, That verb is in the singular. But it's a plural subject, right? Plural subject, Jesus, the Father, two distinct beings, but a singular verb. Again, what is that emphasizing? Paul's making a point to us regarding the Godhead. Okay? So he's not seeing them as completely distinct. He's seeing them together, united. So much so that he goes against Greek verb usage, normal grammar, and instead of putting it in the plural like we might expect, he puts it in the singular. It's another, another hint towards the deity of Christ. Some, I mean, think about it. He's putting Jesus, the God-man, but he's putting Jesus not just in the same breath as the Father in praying, but he's using one verb in the singular to talk about the action that they both are doing. That's very, very amazing and awesome. And here in this early, early, early book, one of the first books that Paul wrote, he's laying out this Trinitarian theology for us. When you really start digging into that idea of the deity of Christ, friends, it's in every single book. It really is there. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit. Sometimes it's very blatant, but it's quite clear. You can have great confidence when it comes to that doctrine. We see two gifts are given to us here. Look at the gifts that he gives us. What does he give us? It says he loved us and he gave us first the eternal comfort so that we could be comforted and then he gives us good hope, both of them through grace. Okay, here's the thing. This emphasizes that God's gifts are dependent on his goodness. How are they coming to us? Through grace. So we're getting God's gifts, not because of of the worthiness of us, like, hey, we're worthy recipients. No, because of God's goodness, through his grace, he gives us his gifts. This should give us actually a further ground for assurance because it's not grounded in us. It's grounded in Christ. It's grounded in the Father, both of them doing this work for us. And keep in mind, we could look at all the prayers of the Bible. Maybe that'd be a good series to do sometime. But we could look at all the prayers in the Bible. These, I mean, these are divinely ordained words spoken by God. Right? Verbally inspired, right? Verbally inspired, inerrant, without error. Every, what does verbally mean? I had a little talk with some, some people about this a few weeks ago. But verbally, when you hear that term verbally, a lot of times people might think, 
audibly. But when we say it's verbally inspired, we mean every single word. Every single word. So if the word is there, God meant it to be there. If there's not a word there, then God didn't want it there. So when we talk about the verbal inspiration of the word of God, we're not just being like, well, his thoughts are kind of encapsulated in, in the book of Galatians. And his thoughts are kind of encapsulated within 2 Thessalonians. And he spoke to Paul, and Paul kind of massaged it or nuanced. No. Every single word is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3. Coming straight from the Holy Spirit. So he wants a word there. We've got it. Whatever word he didn't want there, it ain't there. So we have the verbal inspired word spoken to us by God. And then within these words, we have prayers uttered for us. This is what Paul's praying for them, but he's praying it for us as well. This is, this, so sometimes we're like, oh man, I don't know how to pray. I don't pray. Then, then pray the prayers of the Bible. We got prayers in 1 Thessalonians you can pray. Pray this prayer. You can pray this prayer. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort our hearts. Lord, you say in 2 Thessalonians 2, you're comforting our hearts. I'm, please comfort my heart now. Right? Please establish me in every good work. Please help me in every good word. Those are biblical prayers you cannot go wrong with. So notice, though, what kind of comfort Paul is praying for them. It is, back in verse 16, an eternal comfort. You should underline that or circle that because it's an eternal comfort. It's not temporary. It lasts forever. When does forever end? Never. It lasts forever. Why is it an eternal comfort? Because it comes from the one who is forever. He is the Alpha and what? The Omega. Does anyone know why we say the Alpha and Omega? Okay, it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay, it would sound weird if we said he's the A and the Z, okay? <laughs> but that's what it would have sounded like to them. The Alpha and Omega. Emphasizing the beginning and the end. So listen, when God gives comfort... He does it in large doses. It's an eternal comfort. The comfort that God gives not only exists for whatever present crisis we might be in, but it is an enduring, never-ending comfort that will sustain you and you and you and you until the end of time. So you want a fitting antidote for anxiety and fear? It's comfort. Okay? Not, not what the world offers, but what God gives as his gift. God's given it. Because of his love, he's given something. What is he given? Comfort. He is given comfort. So what's the fitting in antidote for anxiety and fear? Comfort. Now, do we need knowledge? Yes. Do we need truth? Yes. But when gripped with fear or anxiety, comfort is needed most. Now, it'll be coupled with truth. And knowledge. That's what he's given them here in 2 Thessalonians 2. But it's for comfort. Comfort will be at the forefront. You know, someone finds out they just have terminal cancer. You, know, you don't say to them the first words out of your mouth, you know, well, at least you get to go to heaven. Okay? I mean, people have said things like that, okay? I hear the stories. Um, that might be true for that person. But what do they need at that point? They need comfort. Right? 
And someone who just lost their spouse, you don't say, oh, they're in a better place. That might be true if they have trusted in Christ. But guess what? The person that you're supposed to be comforting is not with their spouse right then. They're still here, and they need comfort. Both those things might be true that we talked about, but that's not what that person needs right then. They need comfort. So all of this brings us to, we've been talking about, we have comfort because of who God is, because of what he has done, and now let's look at because of what God will do. Look at verse, uh, we've got to go pa- back a couple verses to see this. We're, we're, we'll start back in verse 7. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Jesus slays the enemy. Paul uses language here that uh, really harkens back to Isaiah chapter 11. Let's just look there briefly. Keep your place in 2 Thessalonians because we're coming back. But Isaiah 11, part of it's going to sound familiar. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who is this talking about? Jesus, right? It's a a messianic verse, a messianic passage. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You know, so he's going to look past what we might see. Okay, he's going to get to the heart of the matter. With righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's what Paul is referencing back in this passage. This This messianic verse in Isaiah, we will see come to complete fruition when Jesus comes back to take care of the man of lawlessness. Listen, this isn't a fight at all. I mean, it's over before it begins. Look back at the verse. Verse 8 in, in 2 Thessalonians 2. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Like, I mean, he doesn't have to do much, does he? I mean, do you really think the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is going to put up a good fight to Jesus? I mean, he might try, but it ain't going to be a fight at all. Do you think Satan will give a good fight to Jesus? I mean, he might try, but there's not going to be a fight, really. Like, seriously, do you really think they stand any chance whatsoever? No. So Jesus will appear and effortlessly bring the man of lawlessness, to nothing. It is over before it begins. Now, sometimes, like, we watch movies, and we like, we like you know, they got the hero, and, and you got the villain, and usually there's, like, this climactic battle, and the scene lasts for some time. You're like, oh, who's going to win, you know? And 
and like the enemy starts to win, and then, and then the hero starts to come back, right? There's like suspense, okay? We all like that. But that's not the case here, okay? This would make a horrible movie ending. <clears throat> because he, he kills them with the breath of his mouth. No swords or weapons. Like, think of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word shall fell him, Right? So this metaphor conveys Christ's ability not merely to overthrow the lawless one, but this is real. The idea is it's just going to be like violent destruction, and it's over before it begins. And what does Jesus do? He brings him to nothing. He brings to nothing. How? By the appearance of his coming. Now, do you all know what an epiphany is? Now, sometimes, and there's probably a couple different definitions, we were like, oh, I had an epiphany the other, like, this, you know, like the light bulb went off or something. That, that's really not what the, the real sense that we normally talk about. Definitely not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about an epiphany, epiphany it's a manifestation of the divine. Okay, God appearing. So you can have theophanies <clears throat> where there's an appearance of God in the Old Testament. We can call them Christophanies where Christ appears. But kind of the overarching term is like an epiphany. We even have it like as part of the church calendar. Some churches, you know, the day of epiphany. But here, it, that, that word, he brings to nothing by the appearance. That's epiphany. That's that Greek word epiphany. Epiphaneo. So he brings to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I mean, Jesus just like appears on the scene. Boom, it's over. It's done. Just by simply appearing, Jesus brings him to nothing. Now, what else is God going to do? In verse 14, he says that he has called us through our gospel so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we get. That's what we get. What a glorious day. We obtain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would call that in our theology, you know, you have justification, you have sanctification, and then you have glorification. Being made like Jesus. We will be given new bodies, new resurrected bodies. That's right. So all your aches and pains, I mean, we always talk about that part, but the part we really should be looking forward to is the fact that he will make us like him, right? And we will never, ever, 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 ever sin again. Okay? Not, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ already did. We'll be made like him. I'm looking forward to that part. And any of you that struggle with sin should be looking forward to that too. Any of you that know the wickedness of your flesh should be looking forward to that as well. You will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you realize that your name, if you have trusted in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Right? So look at Revelation 21. So this is talking about Revelation 21. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and it describes uh, the new Jerusalem. 
And then it says in verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. When was this book written? The Bible tells us before the foundations of the world, your name was put in there. That's what it says. In Philippians, he talks about his fellow workers. He says, when he's talking, he kind of rebukes them, but he, 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 he realizes they're still believers. And he's talking about, I've labored with these ladies, and I've labored with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. <clears throat> Revelation, if you're still in Revelation, turn a couple chapters back so you can see this. I mean, everything's wrapping up once we get towards the end of Revelation. It says in, in verse 7, The angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of, and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So their names haven't been written from the foundation of the world. Guess what? Other people's names have been written from the foundation of the world. If you've trusted in Christ, your name, that, that was decided a long time ago. Christ wrote your name in the book of life. It's his book, and he wrote it a long time ago. Are you in that book? If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are. Your name is there. The ink dried a long time ago. So, so take comfort because of what Christ will do. Think about the comfort that God offers even in the Psalms. Just listen to a couple of these. This is my comfort in my affliction. Now we talked last week a little bit about the Greek Old Testament. It's the same word that Paul uses here that the psalmist is using. Okay, that word for comfort. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Okay, you, want, you want comfort in your affliction, right? You look to the promises of God. Look to what he has already promised to give you. Second Corinthians, what does it say? All the promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Then it says, when I think of your rules from of old, Psalm 119.52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. I mean, now why would that be? Because we know that we've trusted in a God who has set the world exactly how he wants it to be. He set it with the order that he wants, and he set it with the rules that he wants, and he's in control of all of it. About 25 verses later, we're still in Psalm 119, verse 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. I mean, again, these are prayers that we can pray. You're having trouble praying? You're not sure what to pray? Dive into the Psalms. Just start praying through the Psalms. 
Lord, let your steadfast love comfort me. You've promised it. Please let your love comfort me. Friends, brothers and sisters, God has all of this. He has each one of you. Each one of you. Okay? If he has bought you and claimed you for his own and redeemed you from the pit and covered you with the blood of his son, if he, when he sees you, he's, he's justified you, he sees you as righteous in his sight, he's sanctified you, he's made you holy. He even talks about being glorified in the past tense. Like, for God, it's a done deal. It's a done deal if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. Then what he gives for you is all of these things and much more. So take comfort. Psalm 31 says, my times are in your hand. Like time itself. God has that. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. There's another prayer we can pray. Don't be like Jacob in the Old Testament. He refused to be comforted after being told Joseph was dead. It says all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. It's that same word again. He refused to be comforted. Receive the comfort of God. Okay, sometimes our anger, our frustration, our bitterness, it's, like, it's almost like you're shaking your fist sometimes at the Lord. Now you, you need to be comforted by him. You need to receive the comfort from him. Let him comfort your soul from anxiety, from doubt, from uneasiness, from whatever might be giving you unrest. All right, so, I mean, we, we have comfort. He's given it to us. So we need to acknowledge it and we need to receive it. There's comfort, not, not because the world is the way that it should be, not because the Antichrist is coming, not because there will be a great falling away. That's not very comforting at all. But there's comfort because of who God is. There's comfort because of what God has done, and there's comfort because of what God will do. God has all of this. All of it. So whatever might come your way, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever affliction, whatever suffering, there is the comfort of an eternal God that eternally comforts you, and he promises he will walk with you every single step of the way. Regardless of how hard it gets, he will be there. Every single step. Regardless of the challenges, he'll walk with you. And guess what? Regardless of how many times you fail him, he's going to be faithful. You know, I love it when the New Testament says, you know, he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Like God is a faithful God who is with us every single step of the way, even when we don't want him to be with us sometimes, even when we push against him and we push back, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Be comforted by this truth, friends. Like he has the victory. It's already won and decided. There is no doubt. We will see that day one day, fully and completely. Okay? The victory is already set in stone, but we'll get to experience it. We'll get to see it. 
we'll see Jesus. We'll either be coming down with him or going up to him, but we're going to see him appear, and he's going to take care of that man of lawlessness. He's going to take care of the Antichrist. He's going to take care of Satan. There's not even a battle to be fought, really. He's just going to appear, bloop, it's done. All right? Man, that is the God who is your father. That is our great God and king. Certainly, if he can handle this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, Satan himself, he can handle whatever we have going on in our life. He can walk with us through it, and he will be a great comfort as he pours out comfort upon us. Let's pray. Father, I ask right now anyone who, who needs comfort from you, Lord, that you'd pour it out upon them. Let them truly receive it. Let them know you've given it to them in Christ already as a gift. You've given it to them. So let them receive that comfort. Holy Spirit, do your work on those here that are suffering, that are hurting, that are in physical pain, that are going through emotional pain, Lord, dealing with wounds. Bring healing, Lord, bring truth, bring comfort to them. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask to do your work. Thank you that we are loved by you. Thank you for the riches that we have in Christ and what you've given us abundantly a thousand times over. Continue your work on now, Lord. We ask for your glory.